James and Lily get uh, two, <clears throat> not birthdays, but, but birthdays to celebrate uh, over the course of their lives. We have both um, Adoption Day, February 24th, right, good, uh, and also their birthday, July 9th, which is coming up this, this week, but this obviously isn't about James and Lily, that would be odd. Today's an anniversary, and we likewise have kind of two birthday anniversaries as a church. We have Daylight Savings Day in March, which was the anniversary of the first time we gathered as a people. Valley Campus started March of 2014, and the first Sunday in July is the anniversary, July whatever it was, 2019 was the official first service, uh, not of uh, Randolph Street Valley Campus, but of Risen King Church. So today... Uh, is also anniversary, so we are three years old as a body, and what, nine years old or eight years old as a body. But hey, more celebrations the better, right? So I'm thankful for that. Uh, I'm thankful for Isaac and Robbie so that I don't have to lead every Sunday and then preach. That's kind of a throwback. Uh, I think that's what reminded me, like, boy, I'm glad, love leading worship, glad to not have to do that every Sunday and, and here. That's not because I, that's not because, oh, I, I just want to do more on a given Sunday. That's not the case. Uh, but do love getting to see and hear you sing. It's such a difference. If you've never been on stage, um, being able to be part of the worship team in any capacity, if you'd like to be, talk to me, talk to Robbie, talk to Isaac. Uh, but the hearing the, the whole of, of God's people gathered singing and hearing that, Remember at our old church singing And Can It Be, one of my favorite songs. We sang that last Sunday, uh, leading at a church that had um, a few hundred people, and there's a fan-shaped auditorium, people up top, people on the bottom, and uh, sang And Can It Be. It was, I think, the first time I'd led then, not, on, not for their youth group, not for a Sunday, uh, not for a Sunday night, but Sunday morning. It's a standing front and center, uh, orchestra playing to the side. You might have been on piano. Yeah, they had an organ and everything. We'll forgive them for that. I'll forgive them for that, but... Uh, and can it be it's like, all right, let's sing. And you kind of lean into it and get hit back with a wave of sound. And there may not be five or 600 of us here, but y'all sing good. And I'm thankful for it. Thankful that we can shout for joy to God, all the earth, <clears throat> together as a, as a people. Uh, this morning, we're beginning a, a topical sermon series uh, of a yet-to-be-determined length. I think four, maybe shorter than that. Shouldn't be longer because I mapped out when we get back into Colossians and finishing that by Christmas. So a, a TBD length, not of this sermon, that's also yet to be determined, but of this series. A yet to be determined length, but a series I believe is absolutely crucial for me personally, not just as a pastor, as a pastor, but as just a human being, uh, man, husband, father, neighbor. Absolutely crucial for me, absolutely crucial for you individually and whatever your roles are, because this touches on every, every sphere in which you find yourself, this topic speaks to. And it's definitely crucial for our church family and our interactions with each other. Series has been a long time coming. I first started studying this topic to share it with you uh, three years ago, at least. I think like spring of 2019, maybe earlier. Uh, but other things, maybe the planning of the church, I don't know. There's always another text to preach, not just a topic. Is it the right time? Is it the right um, venue to do this? So it's, it got shelved for a variety of reasons. It was very relevant in 2019 in normal church life. It was incredibly relevant in 2020 to 2021 in church life in a COVID world. It is ever increasingly relevant to us here in the summer of 2022. It's not newly relevant, though. It's not newly, novelly needed among Christians. Like, it didn't start being necessary in 2019. And it's not going to stop being necessary after one series of a yet-to-be-determined length in 2022. The subject was clearly important to God, um, to the authors of the New Testament. First few passes going through the New Testament, as I've kind uh, of poured gas on the fire of this study this week and trying to compile scripture references that talk about either explicitly or implicitly or second degree implicitly. Like, oh, I can see this here. Once you start studying something, you see it everywhere, right? I don't think that I'm, I'm making any uh, 
I think I'm overdoing it in that. But the first few passes through the New Testament, I, I've seen it either directly referenced or easily implied in nearly every book. And the books I haven't seen are the books I haven't really looked at yet. So starting with the word used and then similar words used, and as it fans out, it's just like, boy, this is just everywhere. It's of a special importance to Paul. He talks about it more than anyone else. Some 30 times the exact word is used in the New Testament. And then other times it just expands out to similar words. So what is the topic? Uh, the topic is the conscience. Probably not something, well, I know it's not something that you've heard direct sermons about for a long time because I haven't done the series. Uh, referenced it in other passages. It comes up in 1 Timothy, came up in Hebrews. I want to talk about the conscience. So it's a, fee, it's a, a topic of study that's interested me. There's a, a book that I read. I don't remember when it came out. I think a friend of mine who serves in, in, lives and serves in Zambia pointed it out to me, I believe. Uh, this is called Conscience, What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ by Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley. Andy Nacelli is a, an elder at Bethlehem Baptist Church and serves teaching at the uh, Bethlehem College and Seminary there. J.D. Crowley has served in Cambodia as a missionary since 1994. Uh, this is an amazing book. I bought a number of copies that will be on the bookshelf, Lord willing, next, next Sunday for you to be able to pick up. Uh, if you don't want to wait, then don't wait. Let's buy it online somehow. Conscience, what it is, how to train it, and loving those who differ. Not preaching through this book instead of this book, but I found this immensely helpful in pointing me to this book. And so we'll use that as a guide, probably more starting next week. I'll have a number of different quotes about that, but that's valuable. But the topic is interesting, the topic is important, but I wrestled throughout the whole week on how, right? It's not just, I don't know if you think about how preaching works. I hear all sorts of like, a pet peeve of mine is, oh, you had this thing happen, this story. That'll preach. Be like, well, I'm not going to preach about Yellowstone or I'm not going to preach about nearly running out of gas. I'm not going to preach a sermon about how beautiful Glacier National Park was. There may be illustrations, but, but preach the word, not preach my life. Wouldn't be very interesting and wouldn't be profitable and wouldn't be honoring to the Lord. So just the idea of just like, oh, conscience, this is important, important to me, important to you, important to us, but that, that really wasn't enough. So it's like, how do, so what's, what's the point other than talk about conscience, which is kind of what stalled me for three years and five days out of the last week till yesterday, thank the Lord, or this would be really awkward. So I was asking, what's the goal of the series? Why talk about conscience? Why preach on conscience? Because it's not just a lecture. It's not just I'm putting something together to write a book. I'm not. Uh, this is already a good book. We don't, we don't need it. A new book by me. Not just a lecture, but, but a goal for us as a body for your, your good and for God's glory. That's probably actually the even simpler way of, of defining this. The goals of this series simply are your good and God's glory. And you're like, well, you're breaking new ground there. I've never heard that before. Uh, no, but that really struck, struck me that that's exactly what this is. That that's what God is pursuing for us, in us, through us, uh, and what we ought to be pursuing individually uh, and as a body. But there are two, two goals that I've put in other ways, the, the point of this. So today's uh, here's why we're talking about it, and then the next probably three, I think it'll probably at least take me that long, uh, Lord willing, we'll spend some time digging into this subject a little bit more and talking about it. Goals of this series. <clears throat> uh, well, first, there's an individual goal. What I want for me, Peter Ambler. What I want for you, individually. That goal is I, I want you to enjoy the blessedness of living with a clean and clear conscience, those words don't mean the same thing. I want you today and tomorrow and every day for the rest of your life, I know it'll happen into eternity, but I want you to start enjoying now the blessedness of living with a clean and clear conscience. They are both temporal 
right now and eternal benefits to this, living with a clean and clear conscience. It's not automatic. This goal isn't something that just like, oh yeah, got that one. It's good, done, took care of that. Six years ago, we can go on to something different. That's, that's not true. Uh, it's not an automatic that you would enjoy, live enjoying the blessedness of living with a clean and clear conscience. Your conscience can be good. It can be clean or cleansed. But I talk about that a little bit more next week, right? Because you actually don't start off. This is why it's not automatic first and foremost. Because your conscience, when you're born, when it first strikes you that it's there, is not clean. You're, you're born with, a, with an unclean conscience. It can be cleansed, it can become clean, and it can be clear. We'll talk about more of what that means. I just want to let that kind of sit. <clears throat> conscience can be good. Your conscience can also be bad. number of ways in which it can be not good. Uh, it can be evil. It can have an evil conscience. Scripture talks about that. It can have a seared conscience. It can have a defiled conscience. One author, again, I plan on kind of digging into more of what each of those things mean in different texts that talk about them, uh, kind of give that as a progression or a digression from an evil conscience to a seared conscience to a defiled conscience. Uh, the next stage down is not weak, but you can also have a weak conscience, which means that on the good side, you could have a strong conscience. Paul talks about that. That's a beneficial thing. It's good. It's not the only good. It's not the only reality. We'll talk about that. But your conscience can be good or it can be bad. Perhaps a story will help us to see aspects of this. Familiar with 2 Samuel? Who, who's the main character in 2 Samuel? God. Come on, guys. Didn't, didn't Keith teach you about Jonah? Like, Jonah's about God, not about Jonah or the sailor. Sorry. David is talked about a lot. God's, 2 Samuel 11, David sinned against the Lord by committing adultery with Bathsheba, a married woman. She becomes pregnant. He then seeks to cover this up in a number of ways, leading up to David murdering Uriah and then taking Bathsheba as his wife, hoping to just allow the thing to be covered over and moved on. At least several months go by with all of this unaddressed. The child is born. Right? She gets pregnant. She finds out she's pregnant. Uriah is called back from the battlefield. David tries to get him to go in and sleep with his wife. So, oh, the premature baby is different than a I've-been-gone baby. Uriah is murdered. She laments the death of her husband. She's brought in as David's wife. She goes to term, has the baby, right? So, at least a period of months, and then between 2 Samuel 11 and 2 Samuel 12, we don't actually know how long that is. Is it more than a year from David's sin to the prophet Nathan coming to confront him? We don't know. But it didn't just happen back to back. But Nathan the prophet does come in 2 Samuel 12 to confront David. Well, reading the narratives in 2 Samuel... I remember wondering this as, uh, as a teenager, as a high schooler, how can someone go a year with this type of sin and the, the break of fellowship it would make with God? How could somebody go a year in, in stubborn sin? Uh, it's been nearly 20 years since then, and I understand the human heart a little bit better. I know now how you can go a year, five years, 10 years how days just kind of start ticking by and we start to neglect things that we should neglect. We may wonder, though, over the course of that, let's just say a year. Over the course of that year, what was David thinking? What was he feeling about what he had done? Did he forget? In thinking about his different wives that he had, it was just kind of like, now how did we meet again? How was this child born? What, what exactly was David feeling? Was he okay with it? Was David just whistling a happy tune until Nathan comes and confronts him? Well, we know what God was thinking. 
2 Samuel eleven twenty seven. the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. But what was going on inside of David? The scriptures do tell us, but they don't tell us in 2 Samuel. We have to go to the Psalms to hear in David's own words what was going on in his conscience in relationship to this sin against the Lord. Almost certainly referring to this event, Nathan's confrontation, David's confession, David's repentance, and then having received mercy and forgiveness from God, he writes Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. But that's good, love it. But David, what were you thinking over that year? What did it feel like? He tells us. Verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. If you want to dry clothes quickly, move to Arizona. We live in humidity, like pea soup. There's no water anywhere in the state of Arizona. I think they have to truck it in from somewhere. It's definitely not in the air. You hang out. Leanne loved it so much. She just washed clothes that were clean so that she could hang them up to dry. Like a mag- not well, not really, but like a magic trick, just water just sucking it out. And as you go walking or hiking or breathing in Arizona, the moisture's just sucked out of your body. My strength dried up, sucked dry by the heat of summer. How did you feel, David, over the course of a year of ignoring this sin? Did you forget about it? He did not forget about it. His conscience struck him day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute. He probably didn't stop going to worship the Lord. But every time he went, that hypocrisy and sin struck him. He had this evil, bad conscience reminding him of what he had done. Psalm 51 talks about this as well. That's David's confession. Even in the, the text, the uh, preface, as it were, for the psalm, uh, David writes Psalm 51 to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So right after uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, David writes Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, begging God for mercy, he also says this. He's like, Yo, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. What, what is that? That's his conscience screaming at him about his guilt. But then he, he, he asks this, purge me with hyssop. I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation." and uphold me with a willing spirit. Often look at this text and wonders, like, is David talking about, like, losing his salvation? Or is he not a believer, and then he interacts with God? Is he asking for regeneration? That's not the case. You look at other things that David has, has written, God's, inter- God's interaction with him, right? The promises, covenant promises made to David, right? You are a man after my own heart. That's not the statement made to an unbeliever. He did not lose his salvation because the testimony of Scripture is unified, that that's not possible. 
The Holy Spirit could be taken away from him in the sense that like it was taken away from Saul because the Spirit didn't just come on uh, every believer. Every believer was given life. Life comes by the Spirit. That's kind of another discussion. But the Spirit also came on Moses and came on the judges, came on Samuel, came on Saul, came on David, came on Solomon uh, to rule on God's behalf. And so when the Spirit left Saul, it was kind of God's anointing leaving him and abandoning him to try to lead on his own which was a disaster. And the spirit falls on David, anointing him to be God's king. And so in a sense, Psalm 51, he's saying, right? Like, don't, please don't take away the kingdom from me. But that's not the whole of what this is. Like David's not just trying to guard his job. Bones that you have broken, dirtiness, a need to be washed, a lack of joy and gladness, God's face gazing at his sin, iniquities that are stains on his hands, something wrong in his heart and in his spirit, a distance from God's presence. I submit that all of this is a cry for God to make his conscience right again. I don't want to hide my sin anymore. You have, you have laid me low. You have... You have your, if he had a Hebrews 4, right? your, your sword has cut me, soul and spirit, divided me, joints and marrow. You have, you have laid bare the thoughts and intentions of my heart, right? Nothing hidden before the eyes of the one to whom we must give an account. And I'm going to have to give an account to you, right? His conscience is messed up. I mean, it's working, right? That's not... Saying it's, it's evil or it's bad doesn't mean that it's not working. There are ways in which our conscience doesn't work. We're going to talk about that. Not today, more next week, Lord willing. But David's conscience is just beating him up day after day. Do you know what that feels like? Having a conscience that accuses you? We'll, we'll see that's a mercy from God. That's a gift from God. That's for your good. A conscience that reminds you of your guilt and interacting with that, as we will talk about, is part of enjoying the blessedness of living with a clean and clear conscience. David ends Psalm 32 as he celebrates God's mercy. He says, be glad in the Lord and rejoice O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. I, he, he broke my bones, and then at the end, he's like, but I, I've had mercy, I've, I've forgiven, right? The, the crushing weight of the reality of my sin. Uh, come on, let's praise God, right? His conscience has shifted from that bad category to good because of his confession to the Lord. You can have a clean, cleansed conscience, which has to do with your interaction with God. A clean conscience and a clear conscience are not the same thing. Both are necessary for enjoying life now and forever. Really, the only, if we were to divide that, a clean conscience is what's necessary to live forever with God. Because the guilt, filth of your sin is what makes your conscience dirty before God as your judge. Something has to be done about that for you to enjoy the blessedness of living forever with a clean and clear conscience. But also, you can have a clear conscience, which maybe, maybe I'm dividing these too much, but just bear with me for the, the point of it. A clear conscience is the one that doesn't accuse you of having done wrong. Romans chapter 14, huge passage. We'll, uh, we'll bookmark that one. I think I did actually bookmark that one. Yeah. Romans 14, 22, I think Paul addresses this as well. <clears throat> blessed, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment or condemn himself 
for what he approves. This is a conscience passage. This is a conscience verse that you are blessed if you have no reason, if you have nothing in your conscience crying out that you are wrong, if you've dealt with all of that and you have a clear conscience, there's nothing of which I am guilty of before God and man, clean, which is done by the blood of Christ. It's the only way our conscience can be cleaned. You can't pay your own way. Your good works are unrighteous. Christ is the only one who can cleanse our consciences, not sacrifices in the Old Testament. Hebrews makes that clear. This is a great passage. I remember talking about it from this pulpit where the author of Hebrews looks back and talks about all those sacrifices. And I think the way in which it's worded, it's like the offerer follows the law, brings the sacrifice. It's offered by the priest. The aroma goes up before the Lord. And I think the worshiper walks away asking did that work? And really asking, what does the blood of a bull and goat have to do with me and God? The bull didn't do anything. The goat didn't do anything. I did something. How can a goat stand in my place? That question, I think, was to echo in the hearts of God's people for millennia, driving us to, what's the answer? Christ, another sacrifice was needed because only the blood of Christ can cleanse a conscience that's dirty before God. You can have a clear conscience among yourself and your peers and a filthy conscience before God, which is why it needs to be clean and clear. Blessed is the one, however, who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Individually, I want you to, where is it, enjoy today the lack of ulcers, not promising healing. I don't want your gut to remind you of what's wrong. I don't want you to be enjoying a barbecue with your family and then be reminded of the guilt of your sin and have your strength sucked out of you like in the heat of summer. Because that's what our conscience does. I want you to enjoy the blessedness of living with a clean and clear conscience. I want to enjoy the blessedness of laying my head on the pillow and in the five seconds it takes me to fall asleep knowing that I am right with God. I want you to enjoy that too. I want you to enjoy it and I want you to be right about it. And those are different things. Because you can enjoy a clear conscience and be wrong and that's dangerous. That's that seared or defiled idea. But this isn't just an individual goal type series. This, well, they work together. But there's a corporate goal as well, right? That's for your good. This is for God's glory. My goal corporately as a body is that we would glorify God by pursuing unity in our body. And the conscience is key to that absolutely key. Without clean and clear, properly functioning consciences, unity is impossible among a body of believers. But with individually clean and clear consciences that have learned how to interact with other people, unity is possible. Uh, Maybe inevitable as we'll see how we get this goal. How is this reached? I think that a passage that points us to this corporate body family goal, glorifying God by pursuing unity in our body, relating to the conscience, is found in in Romans 15. Romans 15 follows Romans 14. Did you know that? Chapters, verses are funny things. Um, They're not original. It's fine. They're helpful. We could find it. Uh, Find passages a little bit easier, memorize things. But uh, verses and chapters can make us think that divisions happen in a flow of thought where they don't. 
Romans 14.1, not only does that follow everything that came before, first 13 chapters of Romans, but Romans 14.1 starts a section that doesn't stop at the end of, verse four, of the end of chapter 14. It very clearly follows into chapter 15 and continues the end of chapter 15 into chapter 16, right? One letter. But the section relating to the conscience found in Romans 14 consists of more than Romans 14. It goes from Romans 14.1 at least... Most clearly, I would say it it culminates in chapter 15, verse 7. And so the goal, we could preach just this series, we could just walk through Romans 14, we'll come back a lot, is this, this, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10, and Romans 14 are the three conscience passages, the primary conscience passages found in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10, and Romans chapter 14. Through 15, verse 7. So this This is the end. This is the goal that Paul gives for the reason that he discussed with the Romans how they should interact with their own consciences and with the consciences of other people. Here is his climax. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you all to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This, this, we're just going to walk through this to see this goal. Romans 15, 5 through 7, the climax, the culmination of what Paul has to say about the consciences for the sake of a church that he's never met, but he knows about the disagreements that have been happening, about issues related to the conscience that has destroyed the unity of the church, but he wants to see it restored. I don't remember how many points I have, like 11. There's shorter points than normal, though. This is the first thing that sticks out to me. This is, this is Paul's prayer. May the God, may God do something. When we come up against problems or difficulties, do we pray or do we try to fix? Paul sees a problem among a body that he did not know personally had not had a chance to interact with. So what he does first, or at the climax of it, the best, the greatest thing that he has to offer is a prayer about it. Does that strike you as a small thing or a great thing? I hope that we can learn that that's a great thing. How we want to fix, how I want to fix myself, how I want to fix Leanne, how I want to fix the kids, how I want to fix all of you, and I can't. I got the log in my own eye before the speck in yours, but I don't have the power to fix you. Am I supposed to yell at you? Plead with you? Like, what recourse do I have? Prayer. Because all gospel, God-honoring transformation has to come from God not from us. Paul recognizes that. So he prays. Is this unity in the body flowing out of clean and clear consciences, properly interacting with each other? Is this our prayer? You may be like, well, it hasn't been because you never taught on it. I didn't think about it that way. That's fine. Maybe you have. Maybe you've all been praying for it. I haven't been praying for it enough. I want it to be my prayer. Let this be our prayer. That's why it's at the front of the series and not at the back of the series. This will not happen quickly. Unity, harmony. May the God of... You, did you open the text? Open to Romans 15. This is the, pretty much the rest of the sermon. May the God of endurance. Why is God praying to the God of endurance? Because this isn't a quick fix. This is a long haul. Really, much of sanctification is not quick fix. It's long slow, stumbling perseverance. May the God of endurance. It's also, it's not easy. Pursuing this type of unity 
Clean and clear consciences interacting properly with each other is not easy and may very well be discouraging, so we need a God of endurance and a God of encouragement. We would not lose heart. We would not give up. We would see that this goal, as difficult and frustrating as it is, because we're difficult and frustrating people, interacting with difficult and frustrating people, need encouragement from the Lord. A prayer to the God of endurance, to the God of encouragement. I touched on this already, but this is also not independently possible. I think just, I really, really, really want to do everything on my own. I am just the most stubborn little spiritual toddler. No, Daddy, I don't, I don't want help. Let me do it. Well, you're you're going to burn yourself. You're going to mess it up. You're, uh, one of the children last night wanted to feed him or herself soup with a spoon that he or she turned upside down. That's not how you do it. But he or she wanted to do it. Can't, can't use kids for illustrations. Our whole life is not for your personal enjoyment. Uh, maybe that happened to us. Maybe it was someone else. But this goal that we're going to get to, unity, is not independently possible. May God grant you something. Granting, giving as a gift, bestowing on us that which we can't do. It's not just go find it. Go mine for this. Go work toward this. It's not where he starts. No, may God grant it to you. May God produce in our body this goal of unity. So we can spin our wheels, we can preach sermon series until we're blue in the face and have as many different meetings or talks as we want to have, but no goal that's for God's glory and our good will ever be accomplished if God doesn't accomplish it, okay? Sanctification individually and corporately is not independently possible. I think this is actually the point that Jesus is trying to make in the wilderness as he's tempted by Satan. Satan's saying, do it on your own, and Jesus is like, I will not do it on my own. Do it, do it your way. Take care of your needs. God will take care of my needs. Right? Well, use God's word to your advantage. Show your power. I won't do that unless God tells me to do that. Right? Exalt yourself. I won't exalt myself. I'm going to wait for God to exalt me. Total opposite of what happened in the garden. May God grant us. It's not independently possible Not just a better pastor or better elders or different members. Unity must come from God. It's not independently possible. It is a local church community project. May God, the God of endurance and encouragement, grant you, that's plural, you all, to live in such harmony with one another, with one another, that together, you all, y'all, may with one voice, Therefore, welcome one another. I mean, that kind of goes without saying, right? What is unity if you're by yourself? Is there, like, isn't that kind of a little bit of an oxymoron? I'm unified with me. Well, that's not really unity. Christianity is not a solo. It is a choir. A choir singing together in unison. What Once a month, uh, we sing the doxology together. You guys sing it enough? You know it? Let's sing it. Did you hear that? 
everything that flows out of our church is supposed to be that with one voice together glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How good and how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. This is most relevant, perhaps only visible when tested by disagreement. Just as you can't you don't really have unity with yourself. You don't. It's not unity if you already agree. Not biblical unity. It's like making peace with somebody that you haven't had a fight with. That's, that's not what making peace means. Biblical Christian unity is not merely agreement, just like it isn't really love to get along with your friends. If you are generous and hospitable and have your friends over and then they have you over, Scripture says, like, oh, well, it's not, that's not wrong. That's not sin. But, like, really? Is that generous love? We give you a good gift on your birthday. You give me a gift on my birthday. Look how generous we are. Well, they kind of cancel each other out. But we find the poor and the needy and the destitute and the lonely and we bring them into our lives. Like, oh, okay, love. Our unity is supposed to be displayed in every interaction that we have with each other, especially when we gather together as a church, which is only a church when we're gathered, when we're praying together, when we're singing together, when we're reading together, when we're listening together, when we're coming to the Lord's table together, that's when unity is displayed. When people who, wouldn't get, who don't get along and who wouldn't interact with each other come together into one body to, with one voice, sing praise to God and sit under his word and read it together and pray together and then really come as, in a sense, as a climax, come to the table together to see, it's like, you know what? You know where our unity is? It's, it's right here. It's at what Christ has done for us. Do this in remembrance of me, and that's just communally. I did this, he says, for you, and, I, and that's plural. We need to see it that way. This is a community project and an ongoing need of every local church, including ours. Live in such harmony with one another. May God grant you to live. May this be the, may it be our lives. May it characterize us. This isn't something that we solve in one short summer series. It's an ongoing posture toward each other that will promote the health of all of our body. It's what it means to be a local church, parts of the same body, members of the same family. Whatever issues may exist now that these principles need to be applied to, even if we solve, whatever that means, even if we solve an issue, it's not like that's the first issue, and it's not like that's the last issue or disagreement. Right? We could look at 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10. We could look at Romans chapter 14. And we might be like, <laughs> they argued about that. Silly Corinthians. Silly Romans. We would never do that. And then we mention an issue that's a little bit closer to home. And all of a sudden, we pull the swords out that we had and start fighting each other. Like, oh, meat offered to idols. They were so petty. And some churches, it's like, carpet color? Let's go to war. Like, What? Not, we're not fighting about carpet color, but like it's, it's petty until it means something to you. But we need these principles not because we can address a certain issue, whatever that issue is, because there's just going to be another one and another one and another one and another one and another one. Until Jesus comes back, solves all the issues, we go live in heaven together and our consciences are perpetually clear because we aren't sinners anymore. The pursuit of this is harmony. This is where it comes. I want them, may God grant us, you, to live in such, such harmony with one another. Not just harmony, such harmony. It's like, oh, do you guys know, like, what's possible as a redeemed body? Do you, do you know what's possible, Paul's saying? Oh, we could live if God would have granted it. And may he do so that we would live in such harmony with one another. The opposite of discord, dissensions, divisions, and arguments. 
This harmony is destroyed by the strong, we'll talk about that, despising the weak. And the weak passing judgment on the strong when Christians disagree on conscience issues. This is a little bit of a teaser. You aren't who's you. All of you. Any of you. Me as well. You aren't either strong or weak. You are strong on some issues and weak on other issues. And it flips on various issues. So it's not just like, oh, yeah, I'm strong. Those weaklings, right? That's despising. And then the weak, which really is seeing sin where there isn't sin, passing judgment on the strong. That's sin. They're a sinner. God is against them. That's what's happening here. And those things destroy the type of harmony that we're supposed to have as brothers and sisters together in one body. That's what the text is saying. This harmony will be biblical. It must be biblical. Right? How, how much of this could just sounds like something that could be said in a church that doesn't believe anything? I'm not talking about not believing anything. I'm talking about guarding what really is the gospel and what's not the gospel. Where do we see that the harmony must be biblical or am I just throwing in an asterisk? He, he says it. May, the, may God grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. And there's both that aspect of God. Remember Christ in John 17 praying, I, I have this oneness with you, Father, I can't wait to experience the joy of that, but, but more than just us experiencing this oneness and fellowship, I want to bring all of them into it as well, right? Fellowship with each other as they are fellowshipping with me, as I'm fellowshipping with you, that all of us, you and me and me and them and them with each other, that all of us would function together in fellowship and in unity now and forever. Like, that's what he's praying for us. But there's also that sense where it needs to be lined up with Jesus. So it's not just like all of us sort of discussing like what our positions are on various things and then finding unity. Like it has to be biblical. Like the harmony can't just be like never talk about anything. In accord with Christ Jesus, in a way that pleases him, in his name, according to his word, according to his will. Harmony, unity must be submissive to biblical truth in order to honor Christ. And if we pursue godliness and Christ-likeness and holiness, we will find unity and harmony with others who are doing the same thing. And if I can just throw in there that if you, like me, immediately go to, oh, so glad he said that. I just can't wait for everybody else to finally agree with me. Uh, then you need to pay better attention to the whole thing. Because it's not about in accord with Paul and it's not accord with that Peter or this Peter in accord with Christ. So a good question for us to ask when we struggle to be unified with another Christian in our local church, do they disagree with Christ or do they disagree with me? And I want you to proceed carefully in answering that question. And I want to proceed very carefully in answering that question. I'll just tell you that your default position is getting angry because they disagree with you. None of us represent Christ as well as we think we do. The goal of all of this, see, I thought that the goal was harmony. I had it in here. The goal must be harmony. Paul doesn't say that the goal is harmony. Goal isn't unity. Goal isn't harmony. The goal isn't the advancement of risen king church. The goal is the glory of God. Now, I'm glad that that struck me, that I was reminded of it, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How easy it is to say that we long for the glory of God and leave the phrase in Latin and put it on our t-shirts and coffee mugs and bumper stickers and church logos. Maybe if you're really cool on a tattoo. So easy to say. 
But are we willing to actually live for the glory of God by pursuing unity with Christians with whom we disagree like the Bible tells us to? Are we willing to do that? And just to be clear, kind of said this already, I am not talking about somebody else. Whoever you have in your head that needs this sermon, if it's not the first person that you see in the mirror in the morning, then you're wrong. And every time that I, every day, every hour, when I think, oh, how much so-and-so needs this, if, if it's not me first, then I've missed it. And I'm not trying to glorify God. You need this. I need this every day in relation to everybody in this church family. And so do you. I'm not preaching it because I don't need it. I'm preaching it because I do need it. I wanted to preach it because I think some of you need it. And you do. But I need it most. This is not a sermon series somebody else really needs to hear. It's a sermon that I need to hear, that you need to hear. Don't deflect it to someone else. And this is a command. Verse 7, therefore, he prays in verse 5 and 6. Then he commands them, therefore, here's the summary, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another. This idea of welcoming bookends this section. How do I know so clearly, like I said a few minutes ago, that that this passage starts in chapter 14, verse 1, ends in chapter 15, verse 7, at least aspects of this section? This word welcome. Look back, chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, here's a subject that I want to talk about. What's his overarching command? Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. 14.1, welcome him. 15.7, welcome one another. You see, it's bookends. Everything that falls in falls under this, welcoming them in the pursuit of unity for the glory of God. Welcome them, but not to quarrel over opinions. That's what he says in chapter 14, verse 1. Welcome them, receive them, accept them into your life, not simply tolerating their existence. That's not body life. That's not family. Uh, Can't like everybody. No, you can't like everybody, but you can welcome everybody. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul discusses the church as one body with many members. You might think of members as like roll call. That's not what he's talking about. By members, he means body parts, foot, hand, ear, eye, nose. There are weaker parts, he says, and there are stronger parts. And both are indispensable, especially the weaker parts. We bestow honor on our body parts that we think less honorable. Do that here. We treat those with greater modesty parts that we know are unpresentable. Paul says these are aspects of how we're supposed to relate to each other. We must welcome each other with the same attention and care that we give to every single part of our body. Your pinky hurts, everything's wrong, right? Right? Got a pebble in your shoe? We're hiking at the Grand Canyon. I had James sleeping on me. It's very hot, very dry. And I had a pebble in my shoe. And I thought about that pebble. And I thought about my foot. And then Juliet pulled my shoe off. That was a comical scenario. Trying to keep James asleep. Got to keep the babies asleep, right? There's a spiritual lesson there. Preach that. (laughs) Juliet takes off my shoe, dumps off the, the mountain that had accumulated in my shoe, and then sees the tiny pebble and mocked me. I didn't have permission to tell that. It was, a, it was an uncomfortable rock. I cared about my foot. We care about those parts of the body that have those type of needs, the things that stick out in whatever type of way. We respond to that. That's, that's what welcoming means. We must welcome each other with the same care and attention we give to every single part of our body. I mean, you could probably say it's something like this. We are to love like each other, like we love ourselves. Man, somebody should write that down. <laughs> Welcoming is treating our brothers, our sisters, our fellow believers with genuine love, brotherly affection, striving to be better than everyone else at showing honor to everyone else. Romans chapter 12. 
outdo one another with showing honor. This certainly includes respect for every brother and sister, young and old, rich and poor. They messed that up, the the audience that James was writing to. Respect for every brother and sister, young and old, rich and poor, male and female, strong and weak. Welcoming is striving for intimate family fellowship with one another, not letting differences of opinion hinder the unity and the fellowship of the body. And this flows from the gospel. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. How has Christ treated you? Is it because you've agreed with him on everything? I know there's a, there is a difference. He's always right. I'm not saying he's not. But you're probably always wrong. And yet, how has he treated you? Go and do likewise. Is convinced you are that you are right, then welcome those that you're convinced are wrong. You're not as right as you think you are. But Christ was, and he welcomed you nonetheless. Died for you took punishment for your sin on himself. What does it mean to you that you are presently welcomed by our Lord and King Jesus Christ? And the final aspect of this is that the goal is the glory of God. Does that sound familiar? Paul said it twice, so I'm going to say it twice. Can't reiterate it enough. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God, soli Deo Gloria. Three big questions, I think, my plan is to guide us through the rest of this series. And you have some homework this week. If you write stuff down, write this down. If you don't write stuff down, write this down. Three questions I want you to write down, I want you to think through, I want you to talk about. With who? I don't care. Everybody. Talk with them, with each other as you get opportunities. And if you normally don't get opportunities, then make opportunities to talk about these things. Number one, what is the conscience? I'll take my stab at that next week, Lord willing. If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that and preach this sermon next Sunday. What is the conscience? How should I interact with my conscience? Number two. And how should I relate to fellow Christians when our consciences disagree? When, not if, don't misspell that. W-H-E-N, not I-F. You might not be on question three yet, that's okay. What is the conscience? How should I interact with my conscience? How should I relate to fellow Christians when our consciences disagree? Think about it. Write down answers. Talk about it. You talk to me about it. I'll be thinking about it all week. I plan to anyway. I'd move on, but none of you would be listening if you're still writing. So I'm going to transition to the table, but I, I want you to get the questions down. I can also post these on Basecamp. That would be another good way to do this. It's the problem with having things on the board, board, whatever this is, screen. I want you to write it down. If you write it down, you're not listening. And then there's that awkward silence because I like talking so much. So there's babble. Or I call it rambling, ambler, rambling on. Can we edit this out? (laughs) No? (laughs) Thanks, Nash. We'll say that you got them. If you don't, talk to me afterward. And we could talk about the questions because, see, that's the point. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, Your temptation may be to look downward and inward because of your sin. But let me encourage you instead to look upward to Christ and outward to his body. That this is not just, this table is for you, set by Christ. It is for you, but it is not about you individually. It's about him And it is about his body, it's about his people, it's about his bride. That's why we don't 
deliver this to your house for your private devotions. We do it at the gathering, the coming together of God's people to come together to Christ in worship to him, communing as a people with Christ. A table set for all of us who have turned our, turned our hearts in faith to him. So if you're a follower of Christ, member officially of this body or not, but a member of Christ's body, then the table's for you. Pointing us to the sacrifice that Jesus made in that he welcomed us. This is how Christ has welcomed us. Offering his righteous body and shedding his innocent blood for us, for our salvation. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant us God, would you grant us to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together we may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, let us help us welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us for your glory, O God. Amen.